0: As you're being seated, if you would please take out your copies of God's Word and turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. We will be in verse 15 today as we examine the Eighth Commandment together. Again, this is out of Exodus chapter 20, verse 15. Listen carefully, because this is God's word for you today. The Lord God commands, you shall not steal. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's go to our Lord and ask his blessing and for his teaching on this command today. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we do thank you for this text. That is wonderful in its simplicity, but how deeply profound just these few words are and what this calls us to do. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things out of your law and that you would bless the study of it. Or we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You know, there is a saying at least that I heard growing up a lot, that says cheaters will never prosper. And as I've gotten older, I find that this is just not the way things usually are. In fact, it's very often that cheaters do prosper. And the only reason why we can have this statement be somewhat true is because there are some bad cheaters out there. They're just not as good at stealing as some of the rest of us are. Theft is something that is expected and is quite honestly built into the system of how we live our everyday lives. The reason why our auto insurance premiums are as high as they are is because there is the expectation that there are going to be cars stolen. The reason why we have extra things built into homeowners insurance is because we know there will be those that will try to cheat the insurance system. And so the rest of us have to pay to keep these companies afloat. Indeed, this is something that is a part of the fabric of our society, and indeed something of the way that our businesses are built in. In fact, the one uh, is a cartoonist, his name is Scott Adams, who describes our business practices as being contained in what he calls the weasel zone, that gigantic gray area between good moral behavior and outright felonious activities. This seems to be where our business is generally run. And theft comes in many different forms, not just what is outright felonious activities. But what we find is that this is we can take all sorts of things that aren't ours, not just stuff that's physical, but even things like time, things like honor, things like reputation. These are all things that can be stolen as well. But is that all that this commandment covers? Is it just as long as we don't do something as this commandment kept? And I think the answer is no. As what we saw already in Ephesians chapter 4, that the Lord calls us to more than just not thieving, but that there is something that we can give. Jerry Bridges, a wonderful Christian author, gives three attitudes towards possessions. The first attitude is, what's yours is mine and I'll take it. It's the attitude of the thief. The second attitude is, what's mine is mine, and I'll keep it. And this is the attitude of the selfish. And instead, the third view of possessions, the Christian one, Jerry Bridges' view, is what's mine is God's, and I'll share it. That's what we're going to be looking at today as we dive into this commandment. You'll see on the back of your prayer guide, we have returned to our two-point outline. And you'll see the, the first one that we're going to look at is that this commandment is meant to free us from taking. We can be freed from taking, but more so in point number two, we have been freed for giving, for being generous. And that's what we're going to look at today. So we should probably start in the beginning with what is theft practically? if we're going to give definitions for these sorts of things, well, that is really taking what is yours, or or taking what is not yours and making it your own. Excuse me. Uh, That's how the thief will think. You can see where I'm coming from. So if, if we are taking things that are not ours by force or by deception, we can see this is listed out in a couple of different occasions. Turn with me to the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 11 Proverbs chapter 11, verse 1, that says, A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. What's he talking about here? Well, back in those times, the way that you paid for things, they didn't have credit card machines or bank accounts, but what they did have was gold, silver, and other precious metals that you determined how much was there by weighing. And you would have, if you were the seller, you would have Weights that have been standardized is to say this is how much one pound of gold or silver should be. Place that on one end of the scale and keep adding of the other amount of money until the scales balance. That's what it was supposed to be in good business dealings. But sometimes you would have those that would add a little bit more to their standardized weight, which would require the consumer to have to put more and more gold to get those scales to balance as a means of cheating people. There is a famous illustration from the Saturday Evening Post it was in the 1930s where uh, the lady is at a butcher shop and there are, the butcher is looking up at the scale and so is the lady and they both have a slight smile on their face because it seems like they're getting a good deal. And the reason is because the butcher is pushing down on the weighted scale and the lady is pushing up on the scale. Neither one is aware of what the other is doing. And we can laugh at that because we understand that, yes, this is a lot of how we try to run things as a society. But that's exactly the kind of behavior that is condemned here in Proverbs chapter 11, verse 1. Now, we don't often weigh things today, but we often lie about the products that we're trying to sell, trying to make them seem more valuable than they actually are. Or we'll see advertisements that will try to convince you to spend more money than you think is actually reasonable. 15 payments of 989, and it's hard to do all of that math to figure out exactly what it is that you're trying to do. So trying to take things by theft or deception. This is what it is practically. But there's more to it than that, of what theft is practically. And and it would be not using God's gifts in His ways. One way that is brought out is in James chapter 5. Turn there with me in James chapter 5, in verse 4. It says, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. This would be those that have promised to give wages to their people, but are holding them back and are not giving what is justly theirs. Or we can turn, and this can be done not only to our fellow human beings, but this can be done to God as well. In Malachi chapter 3, starting in verse 6, it says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? It says in verse 8, will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? He answers, in your tithes and your contributions. Here what we're saying, what the Lord is saying, is that when we hold back from the Lord what is due him, that we are robbing God. We say, it's like, well, wait a second, is this, are we talking about a tithe for the church today? We don't see that necessarily replicated in, in the New Testament. Is, is it because I don't give 10% of my money that I am robbing God? I don't think it's necessarily a, a percentage point. It doesn't have to be just as low as 10%. It can be more. It can be what you can give. So I don't think the Lord has, in, in particular for us, a percentage point that's in mind. But what I do think he has in mind is that we are, is that the the money that we have is his, and we are expected to be generous with it. And what better way than to contribute to the work that the Lord is doing, first of all in his church, and then in beyond in missions. So while I don't think that there is necessarily a 10% tithe to start with in, in the church that's commanded, but it's a great place to start. As one theologian had, had, had put it, regularly giving to the church is like training wheels for generosity, learning to give regularly of the things that we have to the Lord's work. So that's what theft is practically. And we all know that this is something that is wrong. But if I was to ask you, why is theft wrong? What answer could you give? You could start with, it's like, well, there's the utilitarian argument. It's like if we all as a society are thieving from one another, we don't trust each other, and society doesn't work as well. All right, that can be either good or bad. I think we've proven in capitalism that there's at least some level of theft that we can pursue and have in our societies. So why is this a bad thing? We could say, well, the Lord said it's bad. And that's true. That would be good enough. The Lord has said this. But we can go even deeper than that. What our commentators, and I looked at today, is the reason why theft is wrong is really on two fronts. One, this is a failure to trust in what God has provided for you. When you're taking something from somebody else, this is saying, I need this, and the Lord has not provided it. God doesn't actually know what I need. I do, and I need this so badly I can take it from someone else. Because God is not good or he doesn't know. It's a big assault on the providence and the care of God when we steal. But more than that, this is also taking from other people what God has entrusted to them. We're saying, I need this and they don't. God gave this to that person, but he was wrong to give this amount of whatever it is, money, time, honor, And I can take it from them. This is an assault on what God has provided. It's also an assault on God's concept of private property, that there is such a thing as ownership. This commandment wouldn't mean anything if if there wasn't occasion for private property. So let's dive in a little bit more. So if we see, okay, we know what theft is. It's taking something that belongs to somebody else and appropriating it for us. We see this is a sin against God because it's a failure to trust God for what he has provided for us and telling him he's wrong to have given it to other people. So let's take a look at what is it that can be stolen. What is it that can be stolen? Well, we've already seen and know intuitively that this is possessions and things things from things from the store. We, have, we know that sort of a thing. But there are some other things that we might not have thought of. One of them is time. There is, as we have discovered in this pandemic, there is thieving of time from employers at a mass scale. When we all began working from home and we could actually keep track of how long employees were at their computers, we discovered that most employees were only working one productive hour of their day when their employers were paying them for at least eight productive hours per day. This is stealing time. We've had a contract with our employers that we would render them this many hours of labor. And as we found as a society, we don't. It's a stealing of time for ourselves. We can also see, as we've already mentioned, as we saw in Malachi, that we can steal from God. God. Not just the money that he's given to us and he expects us to return to him, but also his honor and worship. When we, and this is something that I was guilty of much times in growing up, when we sit in the pews and are disengaged with what's happening in the worship of God, set our brains onto autopilot to get through the hymns and the prayers and the lifting up of his word. When we do that, we're stealing worship that is meant to be given to him an act of theft in the middle of his worship. Other things that we can steal is reputation. We do this by slander. This is something that we see of a, an epidemic of that, and especially in the world of online discourse. If anyone has gone into the, the dumpster fire that is social media, we see a lot of this going on. People taking one statement, extrapolating these things out and ruining people's reputations. Alistair Begg tells a story of a woman who was known for her slander. She was quick to move from person to person, taking juicy bits of gossip that she has heard from one thing and expanding on that and destroying people's reputations as she went through the town. One day, the Lord convicted her of what it is that she was doing and had confessed to the pastor what was being done, and she asked what she could do to make up for these sorts of things. And the pastor said, yes, I will tell you, but the first thing you need to do is go down to the market and purchase a chicken that still has its feathers on it. And as you walk back to the church, I want you to pluck the chicken on its way there. And so she she did so and came back to the church. And the pastor looked at her and said, that's wonderful. Thank you. You've taken a first step of obedience. Now go back into the town and gather up all the feathers. And what she said was, I can't possibly do that. The wind has taken them all away. There's no way I can regather them. And he said, and that's exactly what's happened with your slander. These words have gotten out and have gone far beyond the original context that they've been spoken. There is no way of gathering that back. Stealing of reputation. This is something that I think we've all been guilty of at one time or another. And unlike a possession that we steal, one can't give someone's reputation back very easily. This is something that we should be guarded for. And this is a real reaction of how our culture works. That when someone has done something that appears to be wrong, we want to come down on it as hard as we possibly can, no matter what the truth actually is. We need to be careful with that. One final way that we can steal, that we can thieve, and something that I hadn't thought about, but the larger catechism had, was waste. We take the things that God has given to us, and we don't use them well. One commentator put it this way, says, our possessions are not ours to waste as we please. They are a stewardship entrusted to us by God, for which we will have to give an account. He continues on, says, if we don't follow God's rules here voluntarily… Thrift and frugality, a time may come where we will have to be this way because economics will have fallen by the wayside. That was written in 1940, by the way. See how prophetic something like that has been. This changes our whole view of possessions. Yes, there is a place for private property, but it's not something that ultimately belongs to you, it's something that has been entrusted to you to use well. And for God's glory. This gives a very different view of how we look at our possessions and our stuff. It's stuff that has been, that is on loan from God, that we are to use as He would have us to use. So, this is what we're supposed to be freed from in this commandment freed from taking time or worship, honor, glory, possessions. But now we, we want to turn to our second point of freed for giving. How are we supposed to use these possessions? If we're not supposed to steal them. We're not supposed to waste them. What are we to do? And in that, we're supposed to be generous. We saw already from Ephesians chapter 4 in our New Testament reading the idea that Paul has. It's not just being delivered from theft, but being delivered to honesty, to be delivered to transformation. This is something I don't that that is oftentimes not talked about in our evangelism efforts. Spurgeon talks about, if you were to go into a jailhouse and say, would you like to be freed from jail? All of the people that would be inside would say, yes, we would love to get out of here. And Spurgeon follows up, but if you were to go into that same jail and said, how many of you thieves would like to be made honest people? How many of you murderers would like to be told to become life-giving people? How many of those that are liars to become truth-tellers? This is what we need to offer in our gospel proclamations. Not just freedom from, but freedom to. And what this will require is diligence in our work. Unlike most of our culture, that in one breath praises workaholism and in the next tries to skid by for as little as you possibly can. What the Lord calls us is a diligence to our work, not diligence for diligence sake, but diligence so that we will have something saved well, so that when needs arise, we can meet them. This gives an honor and a glory to our work, no matter what it is. Even if it's not prestigious in the eyes of the world, this is prestigious in the eyes of God for what you do that work for, what you gain that money for, not just to spend it on yourself to spend it for God's purposes. Yes, we find that in tithe, but we also find that in giving to other people. This is a powerful statement when we give away something that the world says you have to bring in as much as you can. Kent Hughes put it this way. It says, every time I give, I declare that money does not control me. Perpetual generosity is a perpetual de-deification of money. It's a wonderful phrase. De-deification of money puts it in its proper place to where this is not the only thing that we work for. And indeed, we can use all of our possessions in this way no matter how small or insignificant to the world that they are. A.W. Tozer put it this way. Any temporal possession can be turned into everlasting wealth. Whatever is given to Christ is immediately touched with immortality. Whatever that is that you have, if all you have is a rusty old shovel that you use to help make someone else's home a more safe or comfortable place, this is used, this is, that shovel is now touched with immortality or if you don't have physical ability, but you will give of your time to lift others up in prayer, this time is now no longer just the same seconds that tick by, but is now touched with immortality, as given to the Lord, a precious offering to God. All of our possessions can be made in this way, diligently given to the Lord. Now you may say, well, I see the benefit of all of this. You can see I should be generous. But quite honestly, my heart just isn't there. I mean, I don't know if you've noticed, Pastor, but things are getting kind of tough out there. Inflation's getting really high. Gas is costing more than it's had for a while. Groceries are more expensive. Doesn't this seem like a little kind of an insensitive message to be telling us to give more on top of what's already being taken? Well, there is a way that we can have our hearts go into this generosity mode, even when times are tough around us. There is a phrase that we hear a lot, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I like the way that Kevin DeYoung examines this. He says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, but the reverse is also True. Where your treasure goes, your heart tends to follow. It says, if you're having a hard time getting your heart in the right place, then send your money ahead of it. It's a rather challenge, isn't it? I've heard a, another illustration that works well here in our state. As a one man who was a, was a fan of a certain college football team. To, in order to keep the thing fair, I'll not mention which one it was. And he was devoted to this team for as long as he could remember. But then he had a child that he didn't raise very well and went to the opposing school. He said, and he noticed that the more and more money that he sent to this opposing school, the more and more he began cheering for this team to do well. Because where he was sending his money, there his heart was following. He became a fan of this team after spending the inordinate amount of money to send his child to this school. That's the same thing for us. Where we send our money, we will be invested in, in all senses of the term. Where we send these sorts of things, this is where our heart is pulled. Because it shows us where our priorities are and pulls us in that direction. So sometimes the way to, be, the way to become generous is to start being generous. Start working. And finding out, sit down with your budget and figure out where is it that we could be spending more towards the Lord. It's difficult to do. It's going to require sacrifice, especially today. Finances are never easy. There's always a time where we wish that we could have more. But we we need to examine in our hearts what is it that we want. Has money become deified to us? Is this where we find our rest and our security? And if that's the case, then, beloved, may I say there is something much more valuable out there, and that is Christ. In fact, to quote from Kevin DeYoung again, he said, When we think about Jesus, we would tend to think about what would his attitude towards possessions be? And we tend to think that the Lord would tut tut our desire to have things and to prepare for the future using money to say, it's like, well, we should be exclusively spiritual people. And Kevin DeYoung actually takes a different approach. And he's saying it's the desire for possessions that's not what's wrong, it's which possessions we're clamoring for. The Lord offers treasures, but they're not here. Do you want peace and security? Wonderful. But you won't find that here in gold. But you'll find that in Christ. You'll find that in heaven. If there's anything that this economy can teach us about the, the ways of the world is that we can't trust in this. This system is very, very fragile. We are one microscopic germ getting out from someplace it shouldn't have, that, that should have stayed from an entire economic collapse. We, of all people, should be looking towards Christ more than ever. Generations before us had the blinders put on of a wonderful economy that we could trust in for a long time. And here, in the days in which we are alive, we are given the privilege of showing, of having the curtain pulled back and showing this is, this has no support. Kind of reminds me of in in the... Ancient times, and they would make these gigantic statues towards these rulers and kings. They would drape a large portion of the statue over with this great cloth to hide the fact that most of the statue was not made of stone. But they would make the head, maybe the arm, and one leg and support the rest with wooden struts. And that's what we're seeing now as this curtain's being pulled back. But we're shown something far more valuable, and it's in Christ. In Christ, we don't have most of what we need. In Christ, we don't have some of what we need. In Christ, we have all that we need. He is our only security. But we may say, I don't deserve Christ. I'm a thief. I might not have shoplifted, but I've stolen from my employer, or I've stolen from the Lord. Had my mind wandering during church service and have stolen worship from from God on Sunday morning and right in front of Him, even though all of the theft that we do is right in front of God. How is it that we find forgiveness? We look to the cross. As many commentators noted, who was He crucified with? He was crucified with thieves. In fact, one of them who looked to Christ and said, remember me when you enter into your kingdom, the first person that Jesus had gave ultimate assurance to of that was the thief. who said, today you will be with me in paradise. Why was he able to do that? As Reichen had put it, because Christ was found among thieves. When you have a group of people that are gathered together and one, they're Together in in a crime to rob a bank or a store, even if the person who's driving the getaway vehicle who didn't actually participate in the thievery, they're found guilty as well. Christ was among thieves, not because he was a thief, far from it, but because he took on the sins of these thieves. He was found with us and took all of the punishment that thievery deserves from God. All those times in which we wasted our possessions on ourselves. All those times in which we had withheld things that belonged to other people. Or took things that belonged to other people. All of those things that rightly brings about God's wrath. Christ has paid for them all. And can give us forgiveness. Now we can look at possessions in a far different way. Can we still enjoy the things that the Lord has given to us? Of course. Of course. This so is something that the Lord promises to us in 1 Timothy, too, um, That The Lord has given us all things richly to enjoy, but not to be possessed by. That we are willing to give all of those things and enjoy them supremely in giving them to others. So what's our takeaway here today? Well, our takeaway is, is that the Lord has a very different view of possessions that we do. Something that's much higher and much more freeing. That we're not here in this life to gather up as much stuff as we can to then die and have it all go to someone else. But that we are here to gather up these things so that we can give them to other people. To be generous with the things that the Lord has had. And to truly enjoy the things that are in front of us because we no longer have to fear their loss. And one great way that you can be on your way to having this sort of a heart that's able to generously give to other people is take some time to study on the providence of God, that the Lord is intimately familiar with your situation, that he is in control of every penny that's in your account and everything that comes along. You can be the greatest financial planner that the world has ever seen, and all of it come to nothing. We can have our 10-year plan and only have one more month left to live. But the Lord is in control of all of those things. He can work through all of it. So rest in that. It isn't a matter of us having to obsessively figure out everything, but to make our plans and say, if the Lord wills. That's how we become generous. To know that the Lord is watching over us. The Lord loves us. And the Lord will take care of us so that we do not have to steal but can give. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this promise that you have given to us, this command to not steal. So since you've told us not to steal, then we will never have to and can instead trust in you. Oh, I pray that our hearts would feel the comfort that that brings to us and that we would be transformed into a people that trust you for our own needs and trust you for the needs of others. May you work in our hearts so that we can be providers instead of takers, to be generous with the things that you have given to us. I ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.